Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm going to start tonight in Mark chapter 5. It's a story of healing that you've all heard many, many times before. It's the story of the woman with the issue of blood. Beginning in verse 25, And a certain woman which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse, when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her, uh, of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus immediately knowing in himself that virtue, this is literally the word power, had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? That's King James English for saying, Everybody's touching you. That's why there's such a crowd pushing us from every hand. And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. A couple of things about this uh, incidence of healing that stands out to us. One thing is that she made physical contact with Jesus and felt the healing power of God go into her. Now I'm sure every one of us at some point in time has thought if only we could have been alive when Jesus was here. If only we had the opportunity to make physical contact with Jesus like she did, then we could receive too. But I think that um, uh, fails to recognize a certain part or a certain aspect of this story. And that was, remember when Jesus turned around and said, who touched me? Who touched my clothes? And the disciples are saying, everybody's touching you. That's why there's such a throng. That's why there's such a multitude. Everybody is trying to grab hold of Jesus or push through the crowd to get close enough to touch him. But of all the people that touched him, how many would there be? 10, 20, 50, 100? However many people that touched him, only one woman got anything from him. She's the only one that touched him as a result of her faith. So if we take this position and imagine ourselves in living in Jesus' day, thinking that just the physical touch alone would do the job, this story disproves that. It shows us that it's not just physical contact. It's faith that draws on the power of God. Now I want you to turn with me over to some other examples because uh, Jesus certainly ministered healing in a different, in a variety of ways. There are seven different, seven different places where the Bible tells us that Jesus ministered healing, seven different types of methods that he used to minister healing. So we want to look at something here in John chapter 4. Here's the story of the nobleman's son. Verse 46, it says, So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, nobleman probably means city official of some type. Magistrate, perhaps, or somebody that sits in uh, judgment or a place of keeping the law, enforcing the law, and so forth. We don't know for sure, but we would assume that the, from the word that's used that it's talking about some kind of city official or official in the region. And when he had heard that Jesus has come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said unto him, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down here, error, or before my child will die. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. Notice in this case, Jesus is directing the nobleman in a certain direction pointing him in a direction to where he's not going to have to have physical touch to believe in the power of God. That's what the man wants, the city official. And maybe because of the way that other people defer to city officials or people are of importance, maybe he's kind of like the, the captain of the Syrian army that came down to where Elijah was, uh, or Elisha, I'm sorry, or one of them. Which one was it? Was it Elijah or Elisha? Anyway, whichever one, the Syrian uh, captain 
came down expecting because he was a person of importance that the prophet would come out and wave his hand over the place and strike it or something like that to bring healing to him. But the prophet didn't even leave his house. He said, go tell him to wash off and go dip seven times in the Jordan River. So maybe it's because of this guy's station, this guy's position in, in town or in the region that he's expecting Jesus to treat him with some kind of respect or honor that his office may do unto him. Jesus, however, recognizes the man's problem. Jesus recognizes that the man has positioned himself to receive healing for his son in one and only one way. And that's for Jesus to come down and touch him. So what does Jesus do? He makes him extend or uh, expand his faith. How many times have you believed that God would do something in a certain way and then he does it in a different way and you realize that you can't dictate to God how it works? I've come to the place where I try not to think about how things are going to happen because just as soon as you think in your mind this is the way it'll be, it won't be that way. And we usually pick the best ways for us as far as time and circumstance and so forth. So Jesus says to the nobleman, he realizes that his faith is conditional. Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He must be expecting Jesus to come down and put on some kind of show to heal his son. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. The nobleman said he's losing his grip on his son's life now. Because he realizes that Jesus isn't going to uh, cooperate or comply with what he wants. So he says, my son will die if you don't come. Then Jesus says, go your way, your son liveth. Well, we know the end of the story. We just read it. The end of the story is the, the uh, child began to amend even before the father got home. We don't know what distance he's traveled or how far he has to go. But he puts two and two together, inquires of the servant that came to deliver the good news about his son being okay, or at least recovering. And he realizes that it was the same hour that Jesus spoke. So I want to point out something to you here, and that is Jesus' words in this case carried the same impact, brought about the same results, carried the same power as when the woman with the issue of blood touched him. Same exact thing. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, we'll start in verse 12. It says, And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. Now the, the law of Moses, the Levitical law, provided for people to be isolated or quarantined when they had communicable diseases. You remember in the story with the woman with issue of blood in Mark chapter 5 that we just read, she, her condition would be under this law of isolation or quarantine. She took her life into her hands to go through the crowd without crying, unclean, unclean, unclean. She risked her life because she believed enough in the power of God in Jesus or the fact that God had sent Jesus here to the earth to heal the sick that she was willing to take the risk. These ten lepers would also be under that Levitical law. So they stood afar off. They weren't willing to come down into the crowd. They knew better. If people saw them coming toward them, and recognized that they were lepers, which they were always supposed to identify themselves as being lepers, then they'd throw rocks at them and try to make them go the other way. Anybody that was found in violation of that Levitical law put other people at risk for getting these very contagious diseases like leprosy or blood issues of blood or whatever the case was, specific case was in the woman's condition. And so they stood for far off and they cried after Jesus. Thou son of David, have mercy on us. They lifted up their voice, the Bible says, and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when Jesus saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save or accept this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. So the ten lepers were healed by the power of God through Jesus' spoken words. Through Jesus' spoken words. 
I want you to turn with me over to Luke chapter 9 now. Luke chapter 9. We're going to look at a lot of scripture here over the next few minutes, but we'll tie them all together, I promise. We'll make it all work. Luke chapter 9 and verse 1, it says, Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He gave them authority over sickness and disease and sent them out to do just that. To preach the kingdom of God, the will of God done on the earth, just like it is in heaven, and to heal the sick. Now, if you read further into the chapter, we won't take time to do it, but if you read further into the chapter, the only restriction, the only qualification has nothing to do with the seriousness of the disease. The only qualification is if the people would receive them, if the people in the towns that they went to would receive them. And if they did, Jesus instructs them to do the same things, operate with the same works, utilize the same power that he had for himself that was given to God for him to benefit the people. Jesus is multiplying himself. Well, that does away with the idea that about physical touch on Jesus then. Luke chapter 10 shows us the same thing beginning in verse 1. It says, after these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whether he himself would come. Then he gives them certain instructions. Um, verse 9, skip down to verse 9. He says, and heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Now the ones he's talking about there are the same restrictions, the same conditions as he gave in Luke chapter 9. If the people of the city would receive you, then heal the sick therein. What I want you to see, folks, is that the power of God was not exclusive to Jesus. And the power of God, even in Jesus, was not exclusive to physical touch. So our ideas, or the temptation at least, to think that if we were alive when Jesus was here on the earth, then we could get results, then it would be better, then it would be easier, or whatever, for us to receive, doesn't hold up scripturally. It just doesn't. Jesus multiplied himself. He gave the same power to heal sickness and disease, the same power over the devil, the same authority over the devil as he had himself. He transferred and delegated to the disciples, first the 12 and then the 70. And even in Jesus' ministry, physical contact was not always necessary for the healing power of God to be ministered to somebody. Can you see that? Look with me now to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, this is the night that Jesus was betrayed. This is John, uh, the apostle John telling us all the things that happened during the Last Supper and all the, the conversation that Jesus had with the disciples, the 12, and any others that were gathered there. We know the 12 specifically were there. There may have been others as well. After Judas has left the, the gathering to go and betray Jesus to the Jews, it tells us, what Jesus talked to the disciples about. And notice he says in John chapter 14, after identifying that he that's seen me has seen the Father to Philip and the others that were listening. Notice verse 12. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. Now, is there any way in your thinking that this could exclude healing the sick? I wouldn't want to say that the works of Jesus were only healing the sick. But the Bible makes such an issue and gives us so many accounts of the healing ministry of Jesus and what happened and how it happened, specific cases as well as multitudes being healed. That it doesn't seem to me that anybody that's honest in reading the word could think that he means something other than a definition that includes healing power. Would you agree? So, Jesus said, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. That has to include healing works. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. We've talked about this word ask a lot. It does not mean there are other Greek words that are used and translated ask in the King James that means to make a request. This word does not mean to request. This word means to place a demand on 
This word means to call for. It means to require. It's talking about action based on legal standing or right. So Jesus said, whatever you call for in my name, whatever you require in my name, whatever you place a demand on in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Please notice that does not say that that's what God will do. Jesus said, if you call for or require or demand something in my name, I'll do it. Then he nails it down even further in verse 14. If you shall ask, same word, call for, require, demand. If you make a requirement on my word, and notice the context is verse 12, doing the works of Jesus. He's not talking about prayer. He's not talking about us going to the Father in his name. He's talking about doing the works that he did. He's talking about ministering to others. If you call for, require, demand anything in my name, that will I do. That will I do. Please notice what Jesus' intent is. If we strip away all the denominationalism, the fundamentalism, and all the other stuff that we've heard about what God will and won't do, and just take the Bible as God's revelation to us about his plan and his purpose. If we strip away everything else, then we have to conclude that Jesus intended for you and for me to do exactly the same works in the earth that he did himself. Now, he does not qualify it. He does not say, well, now, I did the big stuff. Don't get discouraged if you can't do the big stuff. But do the best you can. Notice also that Jesus did not put a restriction on the authority, the limit, any limits or boundaries on their authority over the devil or sickness and disease. He did not say, now, I operated in healing power for, for big stuff, critical things, life-threatening situations. But I'm giving you headache authority. Anything that's a headache or less, you have power to operate in. Jesus said the same thing that he did, he expected us to do too. And when you understand what the Bible teaches us, it makes sense because all sickness and disease, whether it's life-threatening or whether it's just a headache, all sickness and disease has the same source. It's all part of the law of sin and death here in the earth. But the Bible says the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from that law of sin and death. So if he had said they had authority over little diseases, they would have found out that what he called little expanded to life-threatening things too. Because it's all the same source. So Jesus says, I expect you, the twelve, to go out and do the same works as me. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 16 now. Jesus is raised from the dead. He appears to his disciples, gives them specific instructions concerning the last day, uh, I'm sorry, the great commandment to preach the word. We'll start in verse 15. He said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. Notice he does not say these signs shall follow the apostles. He said, these signs shall follow them to believe. Well, believe what? I stopped, I paused there because of the punctuation that the King James translators added to it. But there was no original punctuation. I believe that it should be read like this. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Believing in the name of Jesus puts, your, puts yourself in a position to do the same works that he did here on the earth. But you know as well as I do that not all of the church world believes in the name of Jesus. Oh, they believe in it to the point of getting saved. But there was a lot more to the operation of the name of Jesus in the early church than that. I don't mean to speak disparagingly of salvation. If it weren't for salvation, what, where would we be? And if salvation was the only thing, if the remittance of sins... The redemption from sin was the only thing that was available to us. We'd still have to thank God for his wonderful gift. But God doesn't bind it up. God doesn't make something exclusive like that. He doesn't take the narrow position. He says that the same thing. The Bible teaches us that the same price that was paid for redemption from sin was paid for the redemption from sickness and disease. So Jesus said, these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. 
They shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they, the sick, shall recover. They shall recover. I want you to realize something, folks. And I know this is a touchy thing for us because most of us say that we believe it, but we really don't. But if the Bible is true, and if these are accurate accounts of what Jesus said, remember Jesus always did the will of his Father, so he's not just operating on his own behalf, he's operating in the, his father's, under his Father's anointing and authority. But if the Bible is true and these are accurate accounts, then just as Jesus commissioned the twelve in Luke chapter 9 and told them to go heal the sick with very little instructions about it. He said, preach the kingdom of God. God wants the same thing for you here on the earth as he wanted for you in heaven, as he does want for you in heaven. He wants things to be just as good and just as possible and just as powerful for you here on the earth as they will be when you get there in heaven. He commissioned you to do the same thing. Just as Jesus' words brought about miraculous results and not just the physical touch that transmitted the healing power of God to the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5, but the same power, whether it was felt or not, healed the nobleman's son from a long distance away and healed the ten lepers from some distance away where they had separated themselves from the rest of the crowd. And he left us both his word and his name. Let me prove it to you. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Apparently this is something he was doing every day. He had his own spot. Everybody knew him. Everybody had seen him numerous times going in and out of the temple. Who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple asked them for an alms. And Peter fastening his eyes upon him with John said look on us. And he gave heed unto them expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said silver and gold have I none. But such as I have give I thee. What did he know that he had? He knew he had something. What did he know? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was him that sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. Skip down to verse, well, let's just keep reading, verse 11. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered it unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel you at this? Now, whether the people thought so or not, Peter and John must think that healing should be an everyday occurrence. Peter and John... Peter speaking for John, I assume that John is in agreement with what Peter says, identifies that miraculous work should be an everyday thing. We shouldn't even be amazed at God doing miracles. Now, I know that's tough for us to comprehend, but that's, if Peter's speaking on behalf of the Holy Ghost, that's what God's saying. It ought to be a commonplace occurrence. I want you to think about something. The Bible talks about the glory of God, specifically the power of God, being made manifest in the last days of the church. The Bible says that there will be greater glory on the last day church than there was on the former. That can mean either Solomon's temple, when the glory of the Lord appeared in the temple, filled the temple so that the priest couldn't stand to minister, or it could mean the power of God that was demonstrated on the days of the, uh, of the early days of the church as recorded in the book of Acts. Whichever one it is, I'm okay with. Doesn't matter to me. But Jesus said, 
that he expected the church to do the same works that he did. Here's an example of that. Can you imagine what this world would be if the church worldwide started operating in the miracle power of God? Do you realize how quickly things could change? Do you realize that if God started moving, I personally believe that this case in Acts chapter 3 where the man at the beautiful gate, the crippled man, is healed. I believe that it's, the Bible indicates to us, the way that they say certain things seems to indicate to us that it was a manifestation of the Holy Ghost, a gift of faith in operation. But even so, if things started happening like that, and the Spirit of God began to move across this country, uh, don't get me wrong, America is not all God cares about. The further and further we go, it may be less and less of what God cares about. But if the Spirit of God began to move across this country so that in, in church after church after church or believer after believer after believer began to minister the healing power of God, do you realize how obviously that would change things? Imagine if the news cycle was disrupted for whatever the mainstream media wants to talk about and wants to promote or whatever, if the power of God began to display itself in such a way that the news cycle was disrupted and everybody was talking about the miracle working power of God. I believe that's what he's talking about is going to happen. I believe that's what the Bible means. Peter and John said, why look you so earnestly on us, or why marvel you at this, or why look you so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? Now, folks, that encapsulates what most of the modern-day church thinks about how the apostles did healing works, and we can't, or why we can't. Most of the church world thinks that they had some kind of special power because of their special relationship with God. And if anybody should know the answer to that, it should be Peter. He was one of them. Probably the one of the uh, 12, the original 12, that God used the most in miracles of healing. At least the one we have most of the records of. And notice Peter said, this is not as a matter, not because we have some special power. That shoots down one theory of the church. And it's not because we've got some special place with God, some special holiness that shoots down the other leg of the argument. Well, Peter, if it wasn't because you don't have, if it wasn't because you have a special place with God, and it wasn't because you have special power with God that we don't have, what was it? Verse 16 tells us, he said in his name, through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know, yea, the faith which is by him. That might be a reference to special faith. That might be a reference to a manifestation of the gift of special faith, one of the nine manifestations of the Holy Ghost in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Maybe. His name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Now I'm going to skip over to chapter 4 because this is when the rulers of the synagogues come in and they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, verse 3 says. Then verse 4 tells us about the 5,000 people that were saved because this one man got healed. Think about that. 5,000 people got saved in one location because of one man being healed. What if the healing power of God began to flow through America so that 10 people per big city got healed? What would that do? It turned the world upside down. I say these things and I, I point you in this direction because I want you to start believing. No, that's not a way to say it. I want you to begin to understand how easily God could wrap this thing up. What we've spent hundreds of years, we mean the modern day church. What we've spent hundreds of years trying to do through programs, reaching people with arguments, persuasive arguments to try to get people to give their lives to the Lord. God seems to know how to get them in by the multitudes. He seems to know how to get them in 5,000 at a time. 
and the glory of God, the power of God, the presence of God that we've been praying for could make that happen overnight. Well, we know God wants it to happen. He's the one that told us about it. He's the one that told us how to pray. Folks, reaching the world is a simple thing when you're doing it in the power of the Holy Ghost. So Acts chapter 4, it tells us about the 5,000 people that were brought into the family of God as a result of the healing power of God manifested. Then they begin to question Peter, beginning in verse 8. Then Peter, well, maybe I'll back up to verse 7. The religious leaders said this. When they had set him in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Even the religious leaders knew that there were names that you could operate under and get miraculous results. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent, meaning crippled man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. Notice that Peter said, talking to the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Peter says, inspired by the Holy Ghost, notice it says he was filled with the Holy Ghost. That doesn't mean he began to speak with other tongues. That happened in Acts chapter 2. It means the Holy Ghost gives him the words to speak, the answer to give to the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And notice what he says. He says, the name of Jesus equals the man Jesus himself. By the name of Jesus. By the name of Jesus. Then he preaches the resurrection to them, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. Now, I don't want to make it seem like that's unimportant because it's not. It was important for them to get that part of the message out. But it's not relevant to the use of the name for our purpose. So let's pull that out. Let's read through the, the parenthetical part. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, even by him, the name equals him. Even by him does this man stand here before you whole. Even by him. Now remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verses 12, 13, and 14. Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these shall you do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you ask, call for, require, demand in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you call for, require, demand anything in my name. Remember the subject that he's talking about this in relation to is doing the works of Jesus. If you call for, require, or demand anything in my name, I will do it. I will do it, he said. Peter said he did. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, even by him, does this man stand here before you whole. This is a perfect example. I believe it's the reason why it's the example that's left for us. It's a perfect example of the apostles because they believe in the name of Jesus, not just because they're apostles, but because they believe in the name of Jesus did the same works that Jesus did while he was here on the earth. Jesus healed lots of crippled people. And by the use of his name, it brought the man Jesus himself on the scene to make good the power that was placed in demand by Peter and John. So again, we've got a good example. We've made the case based on three different portions of scripture that the healing power of God was never meant to be exclusive to either Jesus or Jesus and just the apostles but it's been made available to the church and the same power is available for us as what was available to the twelve first who had delegated authority over the devil and sickness and disease and then later the seventy the same word that healed then heals now. And we've been commissioned to use that name 
just like the apostles were, just like the 70 were. In the same exact way. Now, what is it that's going to bring that about? What is it that's going to make that happen? Turn with me over to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. James is speaking to the church, specifically the Jewish portion of the church that had been scattered scattered abroad because of the persecution. Notice he said in James chapter 5 verse 7, Be patient therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and has long patience for it, until he receive the early and the latter rain. James is saying by the Holy Ghost, Jesus is not coming back until he can reap a harvest of people. That which is identified as the precious fruit of the earth. He said he's going to wait and realize maximum harvest. What's going to bring about that maximum harvest? Is the clock just ticking down and all of a sudden there's a moment in time where Jesus will come back? Well, there is a moment in time where he'll come back. But the Bible doesn't indicate that he's waiting for the clock to run out. It indicates that he's waiting for the Holy Ghost to move. The husband waiteth. Well, we know he hadn't come. So it says he's waiting. It tells us why he's waiting. He's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it. That means he's willing to let this thing go a lot longer than you or I would. But what's he waiting for? What specifically is he waiting for? He's not specifically waiting for a magic number of people to get saved. There's not some countdown on the clock where it's got to be a hundred trillion or something like that. And one by one we get closer. Instead the Bible says he's waiting for the Holy Ghost to move. Now why would Jesus be waiting for something that wouldn't happen? He knows the will of the Father, doesn't he? And when the Bible tells us, as in this case, that he is waiting for something specific, then shouldn't that be an indication to us that you can take it to the bank, it's going to happen, it's going to come? No way in the world Jesus is waiting for something that he doesn't know already is going to take place. That may be that he doesn't know when the time is that it will take place. Jesus said himself that no man knows the hour of his coming except God the Father. There's a reason for that. Because if Jesus knew himself, then he wouldn't withhold that information from us. He said, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Over and over again, the Bible tells us that Jesus will not withhold any information from us whatsoever. Jesus said in John chapter 16, in that day you shall ask me nothing. King James says, literally it means no more questions. But if Jesus knew when he was coming, all it would take is one of his children to ask him when. And he'd be obligated by his word to answer. So in all probability, I think we can say this with almost complete certainty, Jesus doesn't know when he's coming either. He's waiting for the Father to send forth that shout so he can come back. But one thing he does know He knows that before he does come back, there's going to be a move of the Holy Ghost that's identified by the rain or identified as the rain, both the early and the latter rain. He's looking for a work to be done in the earth that will cause the Holy Ghost to move in such a way that the glory of God will be seen in greater force, in greater measure than it was in the early days of the church. That means we can expect God to do greater things than what this says in in Acts chapter 3 and 4. It has to mean that, doesn't it? What else would it mean? Jesus knows that it's going to happen. Shouldn't we? Shouldn't that be what we set our sights on? The scripture indicates it's what Jesus has set his sights on. He's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth that can only be brought forth by the moving of the Holy Ghost. By the moving of the Holy Ghost. 
Well, we see what the Holy Ghost did in the early days of the church. He did signs and wonders in their midst so that thousands of people got saved at a time. Has God changed his methods? The Bible says God never changes. So if God started off the church, Jesus is the head of the church. If he began the church and built the church on the preaching of Jesus crucified and the healing of the sick, shouldn't we look for the same thing today? John Lake talked about some of this stuff. He said, and, and maybe you've heard me pray this before, but he said that he was prompted to pray that healing would flow like a river and salvation rises the tide. That's the way he said he prayed over the continent of Africa when he was in South Africa. And he said, there were numerous places and testimonies and so forth, but he said that there were times where the river of healing was flowing so strong, the current, of course he's talking spiritually, using a natural illustration to identify spiritual things. But he said it would be like the river of healing was running so fast we couldn't hardly keep up. What he meant by that is we couldn't get all the testimonies. Well, we know that the Holy Ghost does things like that. He certainly did it with him and his ministry in South Africa. And there was a specific purpose for that. And it's not working the same way now, even in South Africa, as it did before. So we know there are ebbs and flows. There have to be ebbs and flows to the moving of the Spirit of God. There are different things that you can identify as moves of the Spirit. The charismatic move of the Spirit was one that took place in the 70s and early, or in the 60s and early 70s. And the emphasis on that move of God was people from all walks of, of life, people from all denominations were being filled with the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. Before that was the healing revival that happened after, started after World War II had ended, started in 1947 and went through about 1958. And healings were manifest in phenomenal measure. There were people that were used in that healing revival, during that healing revival, in such a way that they would go into towns and cities and the crutches and the canes and the wheelchairs that were left from all the people that were healed, they'd put them up on the walls. They'd nail them up on the walls as a testimony. And there are some pictures that, that have shown that after certain healing ministers came through the church or came through that town where the wall is covered there's not a bare spot on that wall so much so that they got to where in certain cases one that I'm aware of in certain cases they had to just haul them off there wasn't enough wall space to put them up so they'd come by the truckloads load these things up by the truckloads and carry them out away from the city somewhere because so many people had been healed. Well, that was just one move of God. There was another move of God that came after the charismatic revival, and that was the teaching of the word. And boy, there would be teachers that there were teachers that sprung up around the body of Christ that would hold meetings in auditoriums, city auditoriums, because that's the only place you could hold the crowds. And people would line up, get their first thing in the morning, and line up and be ready for hours before the doors were open so they could run to the front and sit on the front row. That was a hunger that people had. It was God-given. It wasn't manufactured. There's no way you can manufacture these things. But that was one way the Holy Ghost was moving at that time. And folks, it's been prophesied. It's been spoken by people that were genuinely used of God in the office of the prophet. Smith Wigglesworth, for example, said that the last day... Now remember, he died... In 1941, 42, somewhere around there, I guess. He didn't even see the healing revival. And he prophesied all, the, all three of those moves of God. He said, after I'm gone, there'll be a revival of the healing power of God. 
And then after that would be a revival where people would be filled with the Holy Ghost. And after that would be a revival where people were hungry for the word. And then he said, but then comes the last one, the last move of God. It will incorporate the teaching of the word, the infilling of the Holy Ghost, and the healing power of God. And then shall Jesus return. Well, if you know anything about his life and his ministry, I think when a man like that says something that important, it bears our consideration, if nothing else. Thank God for healing to rise, healing to flow as the river, and salvation to rise as the tide. Any and every move of God is not separate from man, but is man that are used by God to help other people. What I mean by that is the healings that are a part of the glory of God that will be greater than the early days of the church, certainly greater than Solomon's temple, but greater also than the early days of the church. Those works, those miracles are going to be done by people. Maybe not even ministers. Maybe not even the clergy. Maybe it won't be a matter of pastors doing the work or apostles doing the work or something to that effect. Maybe it'll be something where it works, through, works best through laymen, just believers. I, I, I don't know how to say it any other way. I'm not trying to say that in a, a derogatory manner. But I don't know how else to say it. Maybe these are things that will happen on your job or at the grocery store, or wherever you might happen to be. But one thing's for sure, they will happen. They will happen. Jesus is the proof of that. We know he's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth that can only be brought forth by the move of the Holy Ghost. So that move of the Holy Ghost has to be it will be. It must be. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for the privilege that we have to live in these last days. Perilous times, and we can see that things are going to get worse and worse. But you equipped us for these days. You placed the Holy Ghost on the inside of us. You've given us your word. And Lord, we've been faithful to put your word first. We've been faithful to pray for the moving of the Holy Ghost. So we know that we're not going to be left out of this. But we don't want it just for ourselves, Lord. We want this to occur throughout the whole earth, even as your word says it will. Holy Ghost, use us when you begin to move. Use us to display the power and the, the glory of the Lord. Use us to operate even as Peter and John did. Not because we want to make a name for ourselves, Lord. We just want to be involved in everything that you're doing. We want the name of Jesus to be glorified. We want the name of Jesus to be magnified. So we ask you, Father, even as we're stealing from Brother Lake and the way he used to pray, we ask you as well that healing would flow like a river and salvation would rise as the tide. That's what this example in Acts chapter 3 and 4 tells us. One healing flowed into the, church, into the temple at Jerusalem and 5,000 people got saved. Thank you, Father, that you're still the miracle-working God. Thank you, Jesus that you're still building your church on the power of the Holy Ghost and the truth of the word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for indwelling us, leading us, guiding us, directing us into the glory of the Lord. Father, turn our world upside down with the power of God. Turn our world upside down Show man, show the men of this earth how futile their effects and their interests are 
compared to the things of God. You said in your word, Father, that the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of your glory. Not just filled with glory, but filled with the knowledge of your glory. Let that be done. Let it be. Even as you've spoken. We know that it's true because you said so. We know that it shall be because your word identifies it. Make us ready for it, Lord. Get us ready for it. That we might be used as chosen vessels, vessels of honor to bring glory to the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for doing exceeding abundantly above all that we know to ask or think. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. These are exciting days, folks. Don't get distracted. Don't get caught up in the little stuff. Don't get caught up in the things of the world. But keep everything at an arm's distance so that you can keep your attention on him. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. Let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Thank you, Father, that just as you delegated your authority to Jesus here on the earth, Jesus delegated it to the apostles and then to the 70, and then he commissioned the church. These signs shall follow them that believe in his name. One is, they shall lay hands on the sick and the sick shall recover. Thank you, Father, for doing it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for fulfilling it according to the will of the Father. Amen. 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 Keep your eyes open, folks. We're going to see some wonderful things. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.